Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, we had a birthday celebration for Malachi this week. Uh, he turned eight, and uh, Raul and Steph asked him where he'd like to have a birthday dinner at. And uh, it didn't take him long at all to say, Old Country Buffet. Seen through his eight-year-old eyes, that is the glory land of dining right there. <laughs> What's funny is I think he only eats three or four different things, but he can eat as much as he wants. <laughs> and it's just, it's just the vision of all of that food, you know, and gets what he wants, and uh, we get what we have to. And, uh, and then it's dessert time, and you start all over again. There's a dessert buffet. What could be better than that? <laughs> Greatness is in the eye of the beholder. The Christians in Corinth had some ideas about greatness, and they thought they were great. They thought they really had the Christianity thing going on but they didn't realize they had some significant areas of immaturity. Sometimes Christians grow in one area, but they don't grow in another area. Or maybe they grow in two or three areas, but not three or four areas. And the Corinthians had some things going on at their church that were good, but they had some things going on that were bad. Some things that, that needed to change. They had some strong ideas, and one of those ideas was personal freedom. They uh, said, you know, we're free to do this and to do that, but then debates arose, and so they, they sent a question to the Apostle Paul in chapter 8, verse 1. He records that question when, he, when they said, can we eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? And so he spends three chapters of the New Testament answering that question, can we eat the meat sacrificed to idols? And in his lengthy answer, the Apostle Paul touched on a number of significant absolutes. You know, one of those absolutes is there is no way it is ever permissible to worship an idol. And so if you're eating meat and in the context you are worshiping an idol, that is absolutely wrong. There were some other absolutes, and, but then there were principles, broad concepts from God that need to be applied broadly, not only to that issue, but to other issues in life. And today we've come to the conclusion of this three-chapter-long message, and Paul is going to summarize some of those principles and further uh, establish them and, and really give us tremendous instruction for our Christian life today. We don't personally have this question about the meat sacrifice to idols. In some parts of the world, they do. In some parts of the world, Christians have to deal with the exact question. We have to deal with the associated questions that go with the issue of questionable things. Let's look at verse 23 of chapter 10, and please follow as I read. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but eats the other's well-being. 
Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the, Lord, for the earth is the Lord's and its fullness, and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner, and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, as I also imitate Christ. We're going to learn some things about what it means to be a mature Christian or a great Christian today. And the first one is this. True greatness means pursuing Christ-likeness. In verse 23, he says, all things are lawful but not all are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now, when Paul says all things are lawful or all things are allowable, he is not speaking about God-defined moral issues. This statement does not negate all of the rest of the instruction in the New Testament. Lying is wrong. Murder is wrong. Sex outside of marriage of a woman and a man is wrong. Abortion is wrong. Love is right. Controlling anger is right, and you get the idea throughout the whole rest of the New Testament. God's moral absolutes are still absolute. But there are activities that are not God-defined moral absolutes. And so these fall under the teaching of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, and this principle in verse 23. The meat sacrificed to idols was not an issue of absolute right or absolute wrong. And so the question is partially answered by this principle, and as we take all of the principles and hold them together, we come up with the answer for us at any given moment in our life. And that answer starts with this. Is it acceptable with God to eat the meat sacrificed to idols? Yes, it is lawful. It is allowable, but... It is not always helpful or it does not, and I should say, it does not always edify or it does not build up. Helpful is a broad word, but it's further defined by this word edify or to build up. And I just want to ask the question then, what is the target of building up? This is the word, we get our word edifice from, we, you know, we would, uh, of a big fancy building, we would call it a magnificent edifice to build up a building. This build up is the term here. What's supposed to be built up? Well, I think the answer is in Ephesians 4. And he himself, Jesus, gave some, some men to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, till we all as individuals come to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of Christ, the fullness of Christ. Jesus Christ is the blueprint for what is being built. Um, If you've read the paper this week, as I did, you learned that the county courthouse, the county courthouse slash office building, the Whatcom County Courthouse, was not built according to specification. And because of some things that were not done right, there is a brick facade and there is an interior wall and the water has gotten in between the brick and the wall and it's going to cost millions and millions of dollars to fix that. They didn't follow the blueprint. Not exactly. They followed it close, but not exact. (laughs) Those of you in the building trades know the difference between close and exact. The blueprint for us is Jesus Christ. And so the question of 1 Corinthians 10.23 is this. Does the stuff you're doing in life help you to become like Jesus Christ? You see, he says, there are a lot of things that are lawful. They're okay, they're allowable. But the big question is, do those things help you to grow up to become like Christ? And it's not just to be kind of like Christ, like the courthouse building was kind of after the blueprint, it's to be to a perfect man, to be completely perfect in Christ. So, we go back to the specific question. Can you eat the meat sacrificed to idols? Yes. Is that something that is always absolutely, does that always absolutely enable you to become more like Christ? No, not always. Might there be times when you need to say no to what you are free to do in order to accomplish your primary purpose in life? Yes. Now let me just give some examples. And I'm not going to tell you what my personal practice is. Because I can guarantee with every one of these examples, some of you will be on one side of the issue and some of you will be on the other. And the point of my example today is to make you think about this question. Does this help you to grow up in Christ? Okay. Am I free to read the People magazine? Yes. Is it going to help me become more like Christ? Not necessarily, but there could be an article that is an exhortation, that contains an exhortation, and I read one this week while I was waiting to get my eyeglasses fixed. You say, but it isn't a sin, so it's okay. Uh, That is true. It is not a sin to read the People magazine. But what God is challenging us with is a greater question. The question is not just about any activity. Is it a sin? Well, it's not a sin, so it must be okay. No, God is saying the question, that half of the question is, is it a sin or a righteousness? The other half of the question is, is it going to help me grow up in Christ? 
wow, I, frankly, I don't like that question. I like to just drop down at the doctor's office and read the People magazine and not have to think about whether I should be or shouldn't be. The question is, what is the impact on my godliness? God's concept of greatness is more than just stopping at the letter of the law. It goes on to perceive what is best for my soul. What is best for my soul? This has broad impact to to everything in our life from the people we hang around with to the things that we read and the things that we watch and the activities we participate in. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question for us to remember. Is it going to help me become like Christ? Number two, true greatness means caring for others. Look at verse 24. The Apostle Paul has emphasized this theme over and over in several ways in these three chapters. Let no one seek his own but each the other's well-being. In the King James, it uses the word wealth to seek the other's wealth. Uh, in the NIV or the NASV, it uses the word good. What's interesting is it literally reads like this. Let no one seek his own but the other. It's just very, it's very tight there. In other words, what he's saying is don't be self-focused, be others-focused. I, I'll tell you how this played out in my life a couple of weeks ago. I want to leave at the time when the airplane is supposed to leave. I feel like the Seinfeld episode where he says, you know how to take the reservation, but you don't know how to keep the reservation. So we all show up and we all get on the airplane and they say, well, they've taken our pilot for a different, or our, our number two for another flight. And we're going to have to go back in the terminal and eat airplane snacks for two hours. And when I get on the seat, I want an empty seat next to me, or two, with peace and quiet for an hour and a half flight, not a person sitting next to me asking questions. I want what pleases me. And that's what Paul says needs to change. The Corinthians were saying, you know, you, that meat sacrifice to idols, that is the best priced meat in the meat market. Or, or these people really know how to cook meat or whatever it was. Somehow, they wanted to eat the meat sacrifice to the idols. We could have asked the question, is it really that big of a deal? Can't you just eat something else? Maybe it was that pervasive in town that all the meat in the butcher shops had been sacrificed to an idol. I don't know. But the Apostle Paul says, listen, the question is not, are you free to do everything you want to do and have life the way you want to have it? The question is, are you caring for other people? In Christ, love rules and consideration for the weak, not a selfish determination to enjoy all of our liberties regardless of others. It's a quote from John Phillips. And of course, that's based on John 13. John 13, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. How many of you have ever washed somebody else's feet? 
after they've been wearing sandals in the dirt and sweating. Okay. Yeah, let's line up for that duty. That's what this was. Okay. And, and obviously there's the physical element of it, but it was considered a low job. You know, in our American society, we try to make everybody equal, and that's good, but in that society, we need to understand that was, that was you know, low-down work for, for low-down people. He poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. He's saying, listen, Corinthian believers, you have liberty, yes, but there is a greater call of God, and that is the call of God to surrendering your rights to certain activities as a way to help one another. When I seek my own welfare, I act like Satan. I know that's really harsh, but go back to Isaiah 14, and, and what, did, what, did, uh, I, what did Satan say? I will be like the Most High God. I will sit in the big chair. It's me. It's all about me. When I seek my own welfare, I act like Satan. When I seek the good of others, I act like Christ. In our society, greatness is defined by how many people serve you, how many people work for you, how much influence and power you have. When you get delayed on a flight, they crawl on their hands and knees and grovel and say, oh, Mr. Lunsford, we are so sorry for delaying your travel plans. No, instead they say, tough. You want to get on the plane? Okay. And see, in my self-seeking nature, I don't, I don't like that. And that's what God, that's the, you know, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and say it, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, in God's society, the church, greatness is attributed to those who care for others out of a genuine love for God. Number three, true greatness means living in freedom. Seems to be a, a as we look at these principles, some of them seem to kind of go back and forth as though he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth, but he's trying to draw all of these principles together, and I'll, I think you'll see how that happens by the time we get to the end of the passage. Look at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. And if anybody who does not believe, a non-believer, a non-Christian, invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. True greatness means living in freedom. In other words, God is saying, yeah, you live in freedom. 
When you go down to the meat market, you know that some of this meat has been sacrificed to idols, but you also know an idol is nothing, and he's been over all of that in chapter 8. And so he says, you just go to the meat market and buy what you're going to buy and take it home and cook it and don't sweat it. And somebody asks you over for dinner, go to dinner with them. Meat is meat. And that's what he's getting at here. The earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. Meat is meat. It all belongs to God. So eat what you like rather than living in fear of eating something that will contaminate your heart. In chapter 8, we'll review this verse here. Food does not commend us to God. In other words, there's not something mystical or magical about eating meat um, for neither if we eat it are we the better, or neither if we don't eat it are we the worse. God's general rule, God's general rule is enjoy the freedom you have. Nothing wrong with that. You have a fundamental freedom and you should use it. And yet Galatians, uh, Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. This is the reason he put this phrase in. Um, God is asserting his lordship, and he is asserting the fact that we are free and we should be careful about people who want to enslave us. First, Corinthians, uh, First Timothy uh, 6.17, God has given us richly all things to enjoy. Again, remember, we're not talking about moral absolutes, we're talking about questionable things. We're talking about non-absolutes. And if it hasn't happened, the reason this principle is important is this. If it hasn't happened already in your life, someday some Christian, maybe a well-known teacher of one era or another, will try to limit your freedom in Christ for no good reason. What I mean by that, and there's a constant stream of these, uh, I, I could name one that comes to mind whose seminar I went to when I was a young man and he has placed all kinds of legalistic limitations on people. I, I've seen his legalistic limitations break down families because one person is trying to follow them and the other person gets overwhelmed with the yoke of bondage, Galatians chapter 6. And and in the end, we find out he wasn't following his own rules anyway. God's general basic principle for things outside the moral absolutes is you're free, Christian. And so don't let anyone enslave you. These pseudo-teachers or false teachers will try to convince you that there are rules and walls where God has given us freedom. Such teachings are what we usually refer to as legalism. That's not the whole meaning of that word, but we often talk about it that way. Because many people come to believe in those man-made rules as though they will bring favor with God. And the end result of such legalism is often a life focused on inspection of every detail, which leads to arrogance. True greatness means living in freedom of soul even while at times limiting the freedom of activity. 
And that's why he moves on to this next principle of saying true greatness means edifying others. Look at verse 28. If anybody says to you, see, he just said, now, if you go to dinner with somebody and they eat some meat, don't ask where it came from. Verse 28, but if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord and all of its fullness. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Um, while we are free and we should enjoy our freedom in Christ, we are also free to voluntarily care for the less mature. And those are the people he's talking about, the conscience he's speaking of. And, he, and he's referring back to this principle in, in chapter 8, verse 7. There is not in everyone that knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge that this, the idol is nothing and the meat sacrificed to it is nothing. They haven't grown up in Christ enough yet to say that doesn't matter. That's just some men's foolishness. And so because of that, there isn't everyone that knowledge for with the consciousness of the idol until now, they eat it like a thing sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. They are so newly saved out of that idol-worshiping culture. They are so newly saved out of whatever this, this practice is that we are free to do that they, they are drawn back to that sinful thing. When a mature brother or sister participates in it. And so the Apostle Paul says, now if somebody says, I'm going to paraphrase here, if they go, that's not right because of this certain sin and so on, he says, hey, just step away from it. He doesn't say change your whole manner of life, change your way of thinking, and go out as an evangelist for that legalistic rule. But he does say, if, if you're with a weaker Christian, see, that, that's who we're talking about here is the weaker Christian. He's not talking about some, some world-famous teacher who wants to, to change the truth of God. He's saying, here is a genuine younger Christian who is struggling with this issue, and if you are in that person's presence and they raise an issue, then stop what you're doing out of what he's just said, seeking their good, not your own. Obviously, the goal, given the whole tone of this scripture and the rest of the New Testament, is to bring this person along till they walk in the freedom of Christ. But until that happens, we give, we give deference to them. Now here I want to mention some issues again and, and not speak of where my position is. Perhaps you enjoy a glass of wine with dinner, but your guest has come from a struggle with enslavement. Perhaps your friend threw out their television because they couldn't control their watching. And now they're at your house and you're about to turn the TV on. Perhaps your friend listened to certain kinds of music when he or she was doing certain kinds of sin and you enjoy that musical form. Perhaps you're deciding where to eat dinner and you love the buffet at the casino. And your friend cannot separate the restaurant from the gambling. 
I'm well aware that in citing just such a few controversial applications that I'm in danger of being seen in some judgment of failure because I don't do or do do or whatever. I'm not telling you what to think except to say what God thinks, and that is there are times when we need to voluntarily limit our freedom out of love for others. It's not a limiting the freedom as though my whole life has to change because one person doesn't approve of this activity. It's more a matter of saying, I am not going to do anything to slow that person down in their walk with the Lord. There are times when we need to voluntarily, voluntarily limit our freedom out of love for others. And just as verse 29 to 30 say, we don't need to feel constrained because we're laying down for our, our life for our friends in an effort to accomplish verse 31. True greatness means honoring the Father. He says, who you're really deferring to here is not even that Christian. You're deferring to God because God loves that person. Verse 31, which we are all so familiar with, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We've quoted that verse many times. You've thought about that many times, and yet we haven't stopped to say, what is the context of that verse? The context is this issue of questionable things, in particular, the meat sacrifice to an idol. And so what we learn here is that eating and drinking rises to the level of a spiritually significant activity at times. There are certain other parameters on eating and drinking, and and, and we're not going to take time to look at those, but just in this, in this limited setting, there are times when we have to say, what am I about to eat? What am I about to drink? Um, a year or two ago, uh, one of my mentors, Dave Drollinger, who's a missionary in South Africa, came here and visited our church, and he was going to bring a person with him who is, used to be a Muslim and has become a Christian. And... He said, I'm, I'm going to bring this fellow here. I'm gonna, I just want to show him you know, life in the United States and some churches and whatnot. And he said, uh, don't have pork when I come to your house. And he said, he's, he's okay with the concept of eating it, but he just can't stand to eat it. Okay. It would be a gross immaturity and selfishness for me to put a big ham on the table. The prime motive of our godliness always needs to be a desire to honor God. See, if we get in the habit of deferring to people for people's sake, then we start living in the fear of man. Fear of man. Oh, oh, so-and-so will be upset. So-and-so will be upset. Oh, no, no. No, the question is, what does God expect of me? What does God... And so that forces us to really examine this situation in light of God's truth. John MacArthur Put it this way, we should not give up our liberty unless it is clear, unless it is clearly for the upbuilding of someone else. If we refrain from doing certain questionable things, we do not do so from a sense of legalistic compulsion, but from the voluntary restriction of our liberty in order to help build up someone else. We do it out of a desire to honor God. There's no doubt that living in a way that honors God requires sacrifice. 
in this section of Scripture, God is asking us to care more for others than self. And it's tempting to ask with Peter, you know, there was a moment in time when Jesus was talking about sacrifice, and so Peter said, what do we get? He said, we've left all to follow you. What do we get? I want to answer that question. What is the payoff for your sacrifice? From Matthew chapter 6. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corner of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward but when you pray, you go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, secret will reward you openly. That's the second time. I, I skimmed over it the first time. Verse 4, will reward you openly. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who's in the secret place, and your Father who sees in the secret will reward you openly. I know there are different specifics there, but the concept is the same. God says, I'm going to ask you to make some sacrifices for me. And he says, when you do, I will reward you openly. I will reward you openly. And it seems especially petty and maybe that's why Paul, you know, why God through Paul picked this issue of meat sacrifice to idols. It seems especially petty to be attached to eating a food rather than caring for a fellow believer. See, we don't think of it that way. We tend to think of it as over here is my liberty and this person is trying to impinge my liberty. No, the question is not between your liberty. It's between this temporal practice that really is not that big of a deal compared to this person's spiritual well-being. And so when God asks us to make a sacrifice, he says, I'm gonna reward you. I'm gonna take care of you. Do you want the pleasure of this world that lasts at most for the short life you live on this planet, or do you want the honor that God will give in heaven that lasts for eternity? Number six, true greatness means having a priority on discipleship. Look at verse 32. The Apostle Paul says, Give no offense either to the Jews, to the Greeks, or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Give no offense. The offense spoken here is not a reference to all preferences. And here's what I mean by that. In, especially in conservative Christianity, I, I, I guess I don't have... I don't have experience in, in more middle-of-the-road evangelicalism because I haven't been there, but it's real popular to say, that offends me. And that's seen as a veto on any activity. Because we read a scripture like this, and he says, don't offend anyone. He's not talking about preferences of believers. 
he's talking about causing people to fall into sin. That's what he's been speaking about all along. And we could review back to 1 Corinthians 9 and see that. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. I've become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. I might save some. He says we're talking about the salvation of people, not just their preference on this issue or that issue. And so we understand that a great Christian does not put roadblocks in the way of people who need to know the Lord, nor of people who need to grow up in the Lord. And so that's the, that's the lens that we're looking through. We're not just saying, oh, somebody doesn't like this or that. We're saying, will my behavior cause this person to be offended not so much at me, but at Christianity, at Christ? Will my behavior cause this Christian to fall back into some old sin? Because if it will, I've got to let it go. Verse 33, he says, not seeking my own profit. Wow, what a standard that is. The question goes something like this. Do you care about people coming to faith in Christ more than you care about your personal freedom? in Christ? Do you care more about helping people grow up in Christ more than you care about personal freedom? This kind of greatness is the goal we all need to be aiming at, and that's what Paul essentially tells us in chapter 11, verse 1, when he says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. I hope you know that the chapter and verse markings were put in by people many years after the Bible was written just as a way so we could identify where to go to when we're all reading together and that sort of thing. And this is one of those breaks that doesn't belong with the next flow of thought. It belongs with this one. This is the, this is the, the conclusion of his sermon. He says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. This is the ultimate call to self-sacrifice. Um, this call of following the leader wasn't just for Paul and the second generation of Christians. It is a definition of greatness and a call to growth in every Christian. Listen to Romans 15. We then who are strong ought to bear with the, literally, weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to building up or edification, for even Christ didn't please himself. Oh, man, that, that's why I really don't like this verse. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. The Apostle Paul, this is, the, this is the, the, the biggest application of his message. He says, you're talking about food sacrifice to idols. Now look at me and see what I have done. And he says in chapter 9, he said, when I've been with the Greeks, I act like a Greek. When I've been with the Jews, I act like a Jew. He said, I'm all things to all men so that I might win some. And so he tells these Christians, look at my example. You wanna, you, and he's not saying I'm perfect. He's not saying I'm infallible. What he's saying is, here is one example of living out the truth I've been teaching you for three chapters. This is one of the scariest verses in the New Testament. I wish it wasn't there, 
except I love it from the bottom side. What I mean is, I love to have examples to follow. Uh, two different people have already talked to me in this new, this new position I'm going to be in is going to be me being an example for pastors, and two different people have already talked to me about who's going to be my example and my mentor and my pastor because they're wise enough to know that I still need to be looking at some other people. And I've got some people in mind that I hope I can connect with on that level and talk with not only about me, but about things that I encounter. I love this principle on the bottom side. I, I love to have some men that I respect and look up to, but it makes me think back to my days in, as, uh, in college. When I, when I came as a freshman to college, I remember seeing the upperclassmen and thinking, wow, these are some Christian men. Boy, I just, I, I, you know, I'm sure I put them way on a pedestal they didn't belong on. And, and after about three, three and a half years, I was on this side of that, and I'm looking around going, where's all those men? Am I it? I mean, me and my, my fellows? I thought, wow, that's messed up. <laughs> Christian, this needs to be our target. This isn't just for pastors, it wasn't just for Paul, it wasn't just for Christ. It's not just for leaders in the church, it is for us. It was quite popular a few years ago for sports stars who got into trouble to say, I'm not a role model. And they thought that pretty well absolved them of all responsibility. You know what? I don't care if the sports stars are role models or not. I'm not saying it's okay to live in sin. I'm just saying. But Christian, we are supposed to be role models for everybody who is around us and should I, could I say behind us in Christ. The sports star can say that. I'm not a role model and walk away. We cannot say that. We cannot say, well, you know, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a this, I'm not a that. No, no, no. Paul said this to all the Christians at Corinth. You imitate me while I imitate Christ. And the clear inference is you need to walk along in your life so that other people can imitate you and so on and so on and so forth. There was a little football game last Sunday called the Super Bowl. I didn't think it was that super because the Seahawks weren't in it. It was mostly one team dominating the other team, and now that team is the greatest football team in the world. Blah, 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 blah. Ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Greatness in our society is a moving target. It's a moving target, and it's transitory. But the call to greatness, to servant living, to caring for others, that's God's call to greatness. That's real greatness. That target doesn't change. It's always be like Christ. Living to honor our God and Father who calls us to greatness. Heavenly Father, help us to aspire to the greatness of Christ, to the greatness modeled for us by Paul. It is hard to lay down your life 
Help us to do it. Help us to see those times when that's what you're calling us to. Help us not to hang on to our life, to hang on to our freedoms. Help us to put them down and just invest in those people around us. Thank you for your word. May it find its place in our life today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.